This podcast is brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions, Viking Cold's thermal energy storage systems store and discharge up to one megawatt for up to 13 hours per day per facility, plus improve efficiency, an average of 25%. Storing cold inside critical food supply infrastructure also provides three times longer resiliency during planned or unplanned power outages. See more benefits for the grid, the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com grid. We're also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking company. NextTracker works with customers to advance the connected power plant of the future with solar, smart trackers, energy storage systems, and the True Capture advanced control software. Find out more at nexttracker.com. That's nextracker.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, is coronavirus rewriting the clean tech startup survival guide. The implosion for early stage companies outside of energy has been swift. According to a New York Times analysis, 6,000 people at 50 startups have lost their jobs since the middle of March. Once fast growing companies are losing revenue overnight, laying off or furloughing 30, 40, 50% of their staff. This is mostly companies in travel, consumer goods or fintech that are being hardest hit by the current economic freeze. And the full impact on climate tech and clean tech companies is still unknown. Um, and it will really depend on which sector they're targeting, whether they're generating revenue and how long this crisis lasts. Certainly, we know that the demand for clean energy is still there uh, because of the climate crisis and because of policy. So we're going to talk about the impact of this sudden macroeconomic calamity and how startups in this space can get through to the other side. Shil Khan is with me, of course. He is in venture capital himself. He is the managing director of Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Joining us are two of the best people to have this conversation with. Dr. Emily Reichert is the chief executive officer of Greentown Labs. It is the largest clean tech startup incubator in the U.S. She is a Ph.D. chemist with an MBA from MIT, and she has been doing this for a long time. Uh, Emily Reichert, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And we're also joined by the one and only Emily Kirsch, who you hear frequently on our sister podcast, What It Takes. Emily is the founder and CEO of Powerhouse in Oakland, and Powerhouse invests in seed stage clean tech energy startups. And uh, she's on the investment advisory board of NYSERDA as well. Hey, Emily, how are you? Hey, Stephen. Hey, Shale. Doing great and very excited to be here with East Coast Emily. <laughs> Likewise, West Coast Emily. <laughs> how, how are you all doing? Uh, Emily Riker, how, how are things going in your world? Well, first and foremost, just glad to be healthy. Glad my family's healthy. Uh, glad our startup community uh, at Greentown is healthy. And uh, that's uh, really the top line of everything, I think, right now. Uh, as you know, Massachusetts is a bit of a hot spot uh, for the COVID-19 virus. And so I'd say we're all working through that day by day. We went to work from home actually four weeks ago now. So it's uh, been a change to learn how to run a virtual incubator versus an in-person incubator. But um, we are learning fast, step by step. And I'd say our entrepreneurs are coming right along with us as we do. So doing well. And uh, I mentioned that Powerhouse is based in Oakland. I forgot to mention that Greentown Labs is based in Somerville, Mass., outside of Boston here, uh, where I am based. So, Emily Kirsch, how are you doing? 
Doing good. I think it's it's worth starting this conversation and every conversation with a nod to the nurses and doctors and everyone who is on the front lines enabling us to have a livable future. I think they're the ones who are showing us what courage and commitment looks like right now. And it's selfless and heroic. So I and all of us, and I know everyone listening, um, says a big thank you to them. Yes. And we are certainly covering a lot of tumult in this space, but it's important to have gratitude to keep perspective as we work our way through these issues in the business community. So I want to cover um, a, a few different topics. One is just the shifts in how startups in your communities are operating and shale in your portfolio. Um, how are they just going about day-to-day -day operations? Um, are there particular companies that are having the least troubles and particular companies that are having the most troubles? You know, do they need access to certain facilities? Are they missing out on certain types of meetings with investors? And then how are we going to work our way through this um, logistically complicated period? So Shale, let's start with you. Um, what kind of shifts are you seeing with the startups in your portfolio at Energy Impact Partners? Well, so we have close to 30 companies in our portfolio now, and um, what we're seeing across that group, which is a pretty broad swath of different company types and even different stages, uh, is I think there's broadly three types of startups in this current environment. There's a very small group in my mind of companies that for whom this situation, dire though it may be, is just purely a benefit. So like the obvious ones outside of clean tech, like Zoom, Slack, companies like that, where just this is an accelerant to their business. Very, very few of those companies, but they are the fortunate few. Then there's a, a much bigger group where you know, they might actually be somewhat counter-cyclical to a recessionary environment, or maybe the work-from-home thing doesn't actually significantly impact their ability to do their business or to sell their product, but for whom it's still a challenge, right? Things have just slowed down. Enterprise sales have slowed down. Consumer sales are down. If you're in the mobility space, nobody's mobile. So there's a big group of companies where I think like this is not the death knell, um, but for the fact that they, they tend to need cash. Uh, but it is a challenge nonetheless. And then the question is, how big is that challenge? And then there's a third group of companies for whom this is going to have a significant direct impact almost immediately. The obvious examples being in like the travel industry, to some extent, the mobility sector and stuff like that. So you know, there's a bit of like figuring out where you sit within that, I think that's going on. And then since most companies are in category two there, then the question is like, what are the, what do I need to do right now to position myself so that I can both survive through the current environment and then come out the other side as strong as possible? Uh, Emily Riker, what about you? I think it's helpful to know what kind of companies are in your community as well. Um, how, how would you generally characterize the shifts that companies within your incubator are facing? Yeah, well, uh, first and foremost, uh, the companies that Greentown supports tend to be hardware companies or doing science using a wet lab. Um, that is one of the offerings that we have. So of the 100,000 square foot campus that we have there in Somerville, 40,000 of it is actually prototyping or wet chemistry lab space. And so, as you can imagine, when we're on a stay-at-home advisory, no one has access to do their experiments, uh, run their protocols, do their testing in the lab. And so, I'd say the, the biggest change for our entrepreneurs is that they have suddenly become all desk-based companies uh, who can no longer 
be meeting milestones in a laboratory. And so I think that that's a source of a lot of concern and uh, tension with uh, investors in particular who may be expecting them to meet those milestones. The work from home when you're a lab-based company is really dramatic. And unfortunately, we're all in the same boat. Most of our businesses are considered non-essential under Massachusetts state order right now. The only ones that are, are ones that are directly um, impacted or impacting, I should say, uh, COVID-19. And we have two that are in that uh, bucket that um, would be really doing development of technologies that can detect COVID-19. And they've pivoted from what they were previously doing to uh, be addressing this current crisis. A lot of complications there that I want to get into. Um, Emily Kirsch, over to you. Just characterize the kinds of companies you're investing in and supporting and um, the nature of the changes they're facing. You know, Powerhouse isn't an, an incubator, but rather an innovation firm. And so the the value and product is our network and our database of thousands of companies and startups and corporations and investors across the country. And because of that, we've been able to continue all of our work with startups and corporate partners like Schneider headquartered in France and Anel in Italy and Mara Benny out of Japan. So that's all been smooth. And again, kudos to the team for for making it as smooth as it's been. As far as the portfolio goes, we invest in software and fintech, and those startups are particularly well positioned to work virtually. And some are even finding additional and unexpected value in their product. So to give just one example, Powerhouse Ventures invested in a startup called Raptor Maps, which is actually based in Greentown Labs in Boston with East Coast Emily. Um, And they use aerial imagery from drones and planes to help develop, construct, operate, and rate utility-scale solar projects. And the unexpected value to their customers like Enel is that Raptor Maps replaces labor-intensive manual in-person inspections with drones or fixed-wing flyovers, allowing data to be collected and analyzed almost entirely remotely. So their product is playing a really important role in enabling remote work in the solar industry, which Uh, the only work that's happening right now is remote work. So they're particularly notable for that reason. I think that's a good example of, I've been thinking about the, the future as divided into sort of like two time periods. I mean, hopefully that we don't have more than this, but time period one is immediate, which is what's happening right now while we're in this virtually national, almost global lockdown, everybody's working from home and we're just adapting to this new environment and things are changing minute to minute. And then I thought you were going to say BC before coronavirus. (laughs) No, 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 no. That time is long gone. I've forgotten everything that happened before (laughs) coronavirus. Um, and then there's, and then at some point we're going to emerge from that, literally emerge from our homes and like go back out into the world. And then the likelihood is we're in recession. Um, and so there's a bunch of companies where in a recessionary environment, they might actually be relatively resilient, right? Like there are cost savings measures, right? They help you save money on solar O&M, for example, or any number of other things, but for whom in this immediate environment, it is actually still difficult to get stuff done because say construction has slowed down on new projects. And so there's this interesting time dynamic that I think is really difficult for a lot of startups, which is figuring out how long do I plan for this stoppage of work Or how long do I plan for my inability to build up the top of the funnel sales pipeline? Because usually I do that at conferences, Mm -hmm. um, which are these sort of like short-term questions versus the medium-term question of what happens when I can do all that stuff again, but now we're in a recession. I mean, and I think one of the things that that dictates the position you're in as a company, especially if you're in startup land, 
um, is the stage that you're in and whether you are currently generating revenue or not. Emily Riker, maybe I could throw this to you. You have companies in Greentown Labs who, many companies who are pre-revenue and they're still building the product, and then some who have a product and are trying to scale. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the distinction in how they're approaching and how significantly they're impacted by COVID-19 as a result of that difference? No, I can absolutely speak to that. And I think that uh, what we've seen to date, well, there's even more distinctions uh, to break down than that. So I think there's a difference between if you're a revenue generating company that is doing B2B versus B2C, uh, we're seeing yet another difference. And so the B2B revenue generating companies seem to be doing okay. Contracts we're probably already in place with some of the larger companies uh, that uh, West Coast Emily just mentioned. Uh, so there are already uh, contracts that are continuing and going through. For B2C type of uh, startups, those startups are hurting right now. And so they are the ones that we're seeing the most impact on. You know, when you go back um, even further, though, and you look at where they are in the fundraising round, I think that's where you also see a lot of differences. So we have some companies that might have been about three months out from a fundraising round, and they are um, really worried, really trying to identify what their next steps are, um, retrenching, uh, potentially downsizing, because they aren't sure what the investment climate is going to be like going forward. And then we have companies on the opposite end that might have 10, 12, even 18 months of runway if they've just recently raised. And so those companies are, you know, worried, looking out to see how they should adjust, but uh, they're just in a much stronger place. And so we really see many, many different responses from many different types of startups. I'd say the government-funded startups, the ones that mainly have grants, are in good shape at this point. Um, the government seems uh, very motivated to get money out the door at this point in time, so that's been good. Um, but uh, companies that are about to raise or are in the process of fundraising, those ones are the ones that are having the toughest time right now. Yeah, I want to pick up on one thing that you said there, and and I'll ask Emily Kirsch how your companies are thinking about this as well, which is, so I think that's absolutely right. Probably the one of the most important indicators of how problematic in the short term this environment is going to be to you is where you are in the fundraising cycle. And if you're trying to raise capital right now, it doesn't mean it's impossible. It hasn't dropped to zero, but it has certainly been a lot more difficult. And so basically every company that can is trying to push out fundraising, which means they're trying to extend their runway. But I think one thing that a lot of folks who aren't in, in this universe like don't fully appreciate is um, particularly, again, if you are a revenue generating company, there's a big difference in your ability to control your runway or at least to have visibility into it versus if you're pre-revenue. So if you're pre-revenue, your runway is straightforward. You spend a certain amount, um, it's your operational expenses. You can control that. And so you know how much money you have left in the bank. If you are gener generating revenue, it's a net equation, right? Your cash burn is net of what you bring in. And so you can control how much you spend. It's much more difficult in an environment like this to control how much you're actually going to make. And so that makes your inherently makes your runway calculation uncertain. So there's lots of investors out there who you see who are like advising, put yourself in a position to have 12 months of runway or something like that. How do your companies, which I think are largely revenue generating at this point, as are ours, 
Um, how do yours approach the question about the top line, the revenue side? Yeah, the point on revenue is a really important one. And not to sound too harsh about this, but natural selection isn't a bad thing here. I think startups that have built a product that their customers value so much that they're going to continue to pay for it are those that are more likely to survive relative to those that are entirely dependent, let's say, on venture funding, where they haven't been, they're not used to part of their their capital coming from their own revenue. So our portfolio companies are all revenue generating, even though most are only pre-seed and seed stage, and they, they're in that position because they are mostly software um, and fintech focused. Uh, so the impacts on our industry are different than what we're seeing in, in, in typical consumer tech. The whole kind of grow fast or die theory doesn't totally apply to our sector. We all know really well that it takes time for incumbents to embrace new tech. So so I think those startups that are used to being lean are used to building a product that their, their customers really want, that they've been forced to do that. They're going to weather this more smoothly. Um, I think uh, East Coast Emily's point on B2C being particularly hard is a good one, and we are seeing that. Um, one exception to that that has been interesting and wanted to note, a company called WattBuy that's based in Seattle, they enable residents in deregulated energy markets to compare and select electricity providers. And so not surprisingly, WattBuy has seen this dramatic increase in customers that are looking to uh, switch to che- cheaper plans because everyone's looking for ways to save money right now. And in almost every location where WattBuy operates, the 100% renewable rates are less than the average price from utilities. So it's this you know, unintended, interesting opportunity for consumers to save money and to get clean energy at the same time. Coming up, plenty more on how startups are reorienting themselves to the new environment. First, a quick word about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions, a company with a long-duration thermal storage system for commercial and industrial installations. It can store and discharge up to one megawatt for 13 hours per day in a single facility. It provides new demand management flexibility to electricity suppliers with a cost of energy of less than two cents per kilowatt hour. Viking Cold Solutions can provide resiliency and cheap storage. Learn about how thermal energy storage is benefiting the grid, the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com grid. We're also brought to you by NextTracker, the global leader in intelligent solar tracker systems, software, and services. And over the period of this episode, by the time you finish up this conversation, NextTracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems in power plants around the globe. NextTracker provides solar plant operators a valuable tool to protect their assets, make them perform better, and also keep them safer during hailstorms, hurricanes, and heavy snow and other extreme weather events. Find out more at nexttracker.com. So Emily Riker, I want to go back to the first point you made, which is many of the companies uh, at Greentown need access to these lab facilities. And in the meantime, while they can't be together actually testing and meeting milestones, they've they're working on all these other housekeeping items. But ultimately, they need to prove to their investors that they're doing what they say they are doing and they need to get into the labs. So how long can they hold out? I mean, it's obviously dependent on the company, but we're in this holding pattern here. It could be quite protracted. How long can some of these companies hold out and kind of you know, fill in the gaps with other work that they're, they may not have the time to do day to day? 
Well, Stephen, I think that's a question that's hard to answer, and it's a question that I think startups are working through themselves at this time. Um, what I would say that we have seen is that a lot of startups are being pretty smart about how they use this time, and they are redeploying people in ways that perhaps they hadn't thought to do when they had the option to be in the lab. So um, we have companies where maybe they have a product stuck somewhere um, in transit to its final destination. And so instead of uh, saying, well, we're stuck because of COVID-19, they're doing a different type of testing on the product um, that can be done remotely and doing testing of a bunch of edge cases that they wouldn't or have ordinarily done and therefore making the product more safe when it finally gets out the door. In terms of what the startups can do in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of different things that we are trying to provide them to be able to tide them over in this time. For example, we are bringing in folks to speak to our startups, particularly about how to adjust in this time, um, how to work with their uh, investors effectively, um, how to train their staff up on particular types of safety training, uh, how to be able to fill out the PPP loan application. Um, and they also have a lot of things that they can do that are you know outside of the lab. So you have a whole suite of software resources that startups have access to through Greentown Labs. And those things are, you know, whether it's modeling and simulation that they can do, design, uh, you're really seeing, I think, folks just take advantage of the resources they, that they have available to them and, and redeploy their staff in ways that they probably wouldn't have thought of uh, several weeks ago. But I think entrepreneurs are naturally creative people. They are going to figure out how to adjust and change to this new environment. And, you know, we're all hoping that it's going to be a month uh, that we are able to keep people safe by keeping them out of the lab, and then perhaps there is some limited access thereafter. So if we go beyond a month, I think we'll be looking for even more creativity to be happening um, within the laboratory, or excuse me, outside of the laboratory environment. Okay, so that's a rundown on one end of the spectrum. We have hardware companies that need access to labs that are having a lot of troubles, and hopefully they don't last long. On the other end of the spectrum, um, Emily Kirsch, are there certain kinds of companies that you're seeing that are having the least amount of trouble? Yeah, I think you know we, we know that, and Emily stated clearly, how clean energy mobility companies will be hit hard, as, as everyone is. At the same time, there may be some companies that are able to actually um, benefit in some ways from the crisis. So as customers and corporations look to save money and cut costs, startups that do increase efficiency and utilize smart financial mechanisms are really well positioned. So two examples there, one is a company called Energetic Insurance, formerly based in Greentown Labs in Boston, and they provide solar CNI credit insurance to unlock solar financing for unrated or below investment grade organizations by covering default on payment obligations. And what's interesting is that they've seen demand for their products spike in the last three weeks as developers and project owners seek to access financing while capital is cheap and stabilize cash flows. So their customers are seeking out their policy because it helps create more predictability and confidence in off-taker cash flows on solar projects. So that was one nuanced, interesting 
uh, example of, of the impact that the virus has had on energetic insurance. The other interesting nuance that we found was with a, a portfolio company called Station A, um, which uses, uses GIS and machine learning software to determine which clean energy option is best for any building. They, one, have set record usage um, this month. Uh, they have identified about $14 billion in total uh, positive annual bill savings for commercial properties across the U.S. And what's notable and what I'd love, you know, if, if you all have reactions on is my thought is because landlords are going to have a harder time now raising rents or even collecting rent in the first place, given the environment, I think what this means is that other expenses like energy costs are going to matter even more. And so my hope is that that re that that shift in what people are prioritizing may in fact benefit companies like Station A. I think we're going to have a challenge. There's two things, I guess, there. One is that I think what we've seen before in recession-type environments is that on a relative basis, the types of things that save money do better. And it's like obvious on the outside and it is proven true in all the data. On the other hand, even those things tend to suffer in a recessionary environment, um, even against all rhyme and reason sometimes, just because like there's, you know, more inertia um, and more friction in just doing anything. And everybody is risk averse and everybody's battening down the hatches and focusing on their core. And so it can make all the sense in the world sometimes to do something because it is a savings value proposition. And yet you still see less of it done. However, you see more of it done than the alternative thing, which is a luxury purchase, right? And so I think there's an important distinction to make between the relative impact of something like COVID and the resulting recession on certain energy technology companies um, versus the overall impact. Because I do think there's a reality. It's not true of every single company, but... I, I do think that most companies, both inside and outside of our sector, are going to revise downward their 2020 forecast, for example, right? Nobody's not going to do that. And it's it's important for entrepreneurs who are listening to recognize they're not alone in doing that because it is almost universal with the exceptions of the slacks and the zooms of the world. However, you can be better positioned than peers who are you know, selling something that doesn't actually help whoever your customer is, save money, do more with less, be more resilient, work from home, et cetera, all the things that they're going to need to do in this environment. Yeah. <clears throat> and to that point, I know CB Insights is projecting that seed stage funding is going to drop by 22% this quarter. So so yeah, no doubt that it's going to be harder for people to raise and harder for people to get customers, even if the product makes complete sense. But I also think that, you know, you look back to what happened in 2008, 2009, right? Um, Obviously, a, another recessionary event came pretty fast and lasted a long time. But I have to say that, uh, you know, when I look at that time period, I realized that a lot of entrepreneurial type endeavors came out of the bottom of that. So things like Mass Challenge, which is, I think, the largest incub or accelerator program in the world, was spawned by that time where there weren't that many jobs. And so they were trying to help entrepreneurs to be able to accelerate their ventures. And Greentown Labs actually came out of about two years later, that time frame, where you had entrepreneurs who were banding together to be able to share rent in, an, in a basement in South Boston. And so 
Yes, it's going to be tough. Yes, there will be less funding available. But I also think that this type of event can actually spur innovation and spur entrepreneurship in ways that we can't really imagine one month into this crisis. Yeah. And I think that also alludes to perhaps the biggest question mark here, which is there's going to be a series of massive policy responses to this crisis. We've already seen some of them. And you mentioned the PPP loan program, which many clean tech companies, as well as many others, are applying to currently and hoping to get um, some cash out of to, to keep operations going and to keep from having to lay people off. Uh, but there's going to be a series of additional bills, stimulus funding of one kind or another, which, depending on how it all shakes out, could provide a boon to some of the sectors that we're talking about. And that's exactly what happened last time around. I mean, there were a, a million different examples of uh, exciting entrepreneurial endeavors that came out of the last recession, but certainly none of them at a, at a magnitude that compares with the stimulus package and what that did for the sector. So we have no idea if that's going to happen again this time. But if you're looking for like glimmers on the horizon, it certainly could. Um, and to the extent that it does, that could usher in a whole new era of whatever sector we're talking about, right? Like stimulus package could include a ton of funding for EV charging infrastructure and it could accelerate vehicle electrification. We just don't know at this point. I mean, that is such an interesting point, Shale. And I think it's a complete unknown at this point, but we see a bunch of potential stars aligning. I mean, if you the federal government starts spending trillions of dollars, a lot of that money works its way into states and localities that are setting up policies to benefit clean tech, climate tech companies. And even if that money isn't earmarked for specific climate purposes, it makes its way to localities where it can get used in interesting ways that a lot of these companies can can grow off of. Um, so I wonder if either of you, Emily's, are interested in putting on your projection hats, because this is obviously an unknown, but do you see crises, as you said, Emily Riker, can create all sorts of new opportunities? It, forces you to be creative. But this crisis is so different. It's just putting a pause on the economy in a way that we've never really seen in modern times. So it just takes out whole swaths of sectors overnight. However, we do see a lot of these really interesting policy stars aligning um, in the medium term. So I wonder if, if either of you are willing to kind of look out and see and, and project whether you think that there, this will be an even bigger opportunity for the sector. The thing that I would find most encouraging, and I don't see any signs of this decreasing yet, um, is what we'd see large companies doing in terms of their commitment to climate, climate action, and moving forward on initiatives around sustainability. So I just caught um, a headline from Ibadrola, for example, that they are doubling down on renewables as a way to move themselves out of this crisis. I think that that kind of leadership is going to be increasingly important. And I hope that we see more of it in this time, because I think that that's a really good sign that our industry is healthy and will continue strong. Because in order to meet the goals that many of these companies have set, they are going to need the <laughs> Uh, the help and support of a lot of the innovators that um, Emily and I support in our laboratories. And so if we can see corporate leadership at this time, that's a really good sign. I think the investment community is kind of on a wait and see moment. Uh, we actually have collected uh, 
the signatures of a variety of different investors in the clean tech sector who have committed to continuing to invest uh, over the next several months. They are also saying that they are going to work with startups to help them adjust their milestones as needed. And that's especially important when those are technical milestones that need to be completed in the lab and that they're committed to working with entrepreneurs. So to me, those are good signs. They're, those signs are going to outlive and outlast um, what is the worst of this crisis and put us in a good position to move forward as an industry. Yeah, I think two points there. One, uh, Emily, I think you, you raise a good point. You know, what is happening in the corporate sector? Um, I think Iberdola is a really good example. Um, another one that I think is worth highlighting is Schneider Electric, which we talked to them about, you know, is, is this going to change your investment strategy? Um, it won't. They're committed to the long term. Um, they're also doing really unique things like collaborating to produce ventilators in France. Um, and obviously they're working at hospitals and data centers around the world to ensure that these critical facilities have the power that they need to run 24-7, even in, as demand surges. So things like that, I think, are notable and worth acknowledging and celebrating. Emily Riker, let's talk about evolution of business models. Um, and this may or may not apply to the companies at Greentown. But, you know, we hear stories about distilleries that are all of a sudden making hand sanitizer, right? And they're selling out of hand sanitizer. They they saw, you know, weeks of orders that were frozen. And now all of a sudden they're making tons of money selling hand sanitizer. You have auto companies and Tesla uh, and Bloom Energy making ventilator components or, or, or assembling ventilators. So there are all these opportunities to, you know, use uh, manufacturing infrastructure or technical know-how to help in this crisis. Do you see opportunities like that within your companies? Yeah, certainly. And I'll highlight one of them, a company called BioBots. And they were really originally focusing on wastewater, detection in wastewater, um, of different chemicals, uh, opioids uh, were one of the things that they were looking at. And that was really to track uh, kind of the epidemic of of um, drug use in cities. And so their first customer would be a municipality typically. But now they are actually working on better tracking the COVID-19 outbreak um, with a wastewater epidemiology platform that they're developing and they're doing it alongside researchers at MIT, Harvard, and Brigham and Women's here in the Boston area. And they're able to detect traces of the virus material um, in raw sewage samples. And these have been collected from now 25 states. And the data that they use is going to be able to estimate the uh, percentage of infected population in a city or county so that government officials can better inform public health interventions. So that's one example of a company that was, uh, you know, starting out uh, really on a different track, but has rapidly pivoted to address a current need um, in the marketplace due to COVID-19. Okay, I want to wrap up with um, maybe a summary of what we've talked about and ask you about some of the unknowns that you're facing. So we'll talk about the known unknowns and then the unknown unknowns, so to speak, that you're thinking through organizationally or within um, member companies. Um, so Shale, maybe you can start. So what are your known unknowns and then your unknown unknowns? Well, the biggest known unknown is the shape of this recovery, I think. Um, so 
there are historically a bunch of different shapes of recession recoveries. There's the V, which is the quick snap back to normalcy, which would be what we ideally want, which would be like us coming out of lockdown and then pretty quickly, a few months later, um, things return to normal. There's the U, where it stays low for a while, but then has a fast snap back. There's the L, which is what happened in 2008, which is that's not what you want. It's a really slow, steady recovery after a steep decline. There's the W, which unfortunately seems like a distinct possibility this time, because if we have a second wave of COVID in the fall, that can lead us right back down into, into recession again. That There could be some new shape that we've never seen before, right? And that question presents the fundamental uncertainty that I think makes it so difficult to manage in the current times for anybody, but particularly for startups who are trying to manage cash and growth and fundraising and product and customers and all this different stuff, just like not having any kind of visibility into that. That is to me the fundamental known, we know we don't know what it's going to be like. And so that makes it very difficult to plan. As far as unknown unknowns, isn't the isn't the definition of an unknown unknown that we don't know we don't know it yet? So I reject the premise of an unknown unknown question. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Well, I can talk about known unknowns, and I think that I would take a different tack from Shale and and go back to the behavior of the humans in this moment and. Particularly, you know, our world is centered around startups and their growth and their survival. And that is our mission is to get their technology out into the world where it can have an impact on climate. And so I guess to me, one unknown is how are entrepreneurs going to deal with this challenge uh, that's in front of them? Um, Is that leadership that Emily talked about uh, going to get them through this crisis and be in a better place so that investors seeing that will have confidence in them and continue to push forward once we are through the worst of this? You know, I'd say the second thing is um, investor behavior. I have heard already some horror stories of investors basically just saying, cut, cut now, and uh, you won't be sorry. 30%, just take it off without any real thought or guidance to startups about how that may apply to their own individual companies. And uh, it's something that, you know, as Greentown, as we are not an investor, um, we are tracking certainly which investors are going to be well-behaved in this time, meaning that they act with humanity, realizing that if a startup is lab-based and they cannot access that lab, then perhaps that milestone needs to be adjusted. Uh, investor behavior, I think, is is an unknown that um, we have, unfortunately, previous models of the calling of the herd and, and uh, things like that that I just hope don't happen again. And especially in this industry where our mission is not only to make money, but it is also to have a broader impact on the climate and environment. So I hope that folks keep that in mind and stay the course with startups. Emily Kirsch. Yeah, I think Emily is spot on. So many unknowns as it relates to the startups themselves, the corporates and their activity and choices, investors, um, all the new investors that were saying they were going to come in in January and February, what's going to happen to them? Um, Will people be starting companies? Um, But I think Emily's right that the severity that we're all experiencing now as a result of the coronavirus is just a fraction of the impact that we're all currently experiencing and going to experience more over time as a result of the climate crisis. Uh, So I think the key takeaway that I hope everyone leaves with is the fact that 
you know, no matter what crisis we're facing, whether it's the coronavirus or the climate crisis, that people matter and that everyone listening to this, what you choose to do with your life makes a big difference and that the world needs people like you working on the most important issues of our time. Because like the coronavirus, the climate crisis isn't a distant threat. It is at our doorstep affecting billions of lives right now. So I hope that all of us are called to do our best when it matters most, like right now. Yeah, for me, the known unknowns are positive. At least I'm trying to think positively. One is how does this shift behavior and will this have a lasting impact on the way we work, the way we get around, the way we make investments? And of course, we're going to be spending a lot of money and we have a, a, a real urgency about climate change. And so it'll be interesting to see how eventually that money makes its way through the system. And I think that that's a potentially positive known unknown. Let me defend the unknown unknowns, <laughs> though, because six weeks ago, who would have thought we'd be having this conversation about the unknowns, right? I mean, most of the companies maybe two months ago this was not even on their radar. And now here we are discussing a whole different set of potential problems that we just don't know the outcome to. So if this is protracted and it lasts, you know, you know, we're, we're thinking through this 12, 18 months from now, we've got a whole series of challenges that we're not even thinking about yet. So that's what I mean by unknown unknowns. Wait, you're just saying that there are unknown unknowns? <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> we'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you both so much. I mean, I wish you both the best of luck in steering your organizations and your companies through this. I know we're at the very beginning, so we appreciate you thinking through this with us. Um, Emily Kirsch, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to bring us the content that we all count on and learn from. It's a really important service, especially now. And Emily Reichert, thanks to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you all and uh, to have a chance to have a little normalcy in our conversation today as uh, we're all looking at each other. And Emily is wearing a, a blazer, so I'd like to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, East Coast Emily. Shale, the great unknown unknown is what we're going to be talking about next week. I tell you what the known unknown is. Now that we're doing <laughs> these recordings on Zoom and I can see you, I feel like every time I see you, you've put another layer of foam behind you for the soundproofing. And I worry that you are slowly but surely <laughs> going to enclose yourself in foam and then you'll never emerge from your recording studio. <laughs> so it, I, it's unknown to me how long it's going to take you to mummify yourself in recording foam. Well, as long as you're still hearing my voice, you'll know I'm here, whether or not you can see me. I feel like we could all use a foam padded room right now. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly could. Yeah. Where do I get, where do I get me one yeah. of those? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, you think it's a recording room for Steven. It's actually where he goes to womp. This is a multi, multi-use multi room for sure. Uh, thanks all for being here. Good conversation. Thanks to all of you for listening. We want to hear your feedback. You can find Emily Riker, Emily Kirsch, Shale Khan, Interchange Show, Greentown Labs, Powerhouse. We're all there on Twitter. Please um, interact with us. I think if you try to put all our names in one tweet, you won't get any words out in your tweet, but you can find us all there and we would love to hear um, what you think. If you're you know, running a company and you're facing issues, we want to echo the experiences that you are facing. And, and of course, we're all going through this together. And so we want your concerns and your experiences to help inform the conversations that we have going forward so please feel free to reach out there the interchange is a weekly podcast on the global energy transformation it's hosted by me Stephen lacy 
and Shale Khan. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Thanks, Ingrid. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. We'll be right back.